0: John's gospel, the 20th chapter, John chapter number 20, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number one. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Let me just stop there for a minute. John is writing this and he's talking about himself when he says, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? Isn't it great to have a revelation of just how much God loves you? And he says, And the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and he said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, Yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet They did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laid. Then they said to her woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why Who are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, "Rabbi," which is to say, teacher... Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Today we are continuing in our series, The Broadway." as in the broad way that leads to destruction, as in the choices that we can often make in our life that lead to a less than perfect life and sometimes even a wrecked life. Today, the choice that I want to talk to you about is rejecting the resurrection. If we reject the resurrection, our life is headed for destruction. Why so? Well, because if the resurrection is not true, then Jesus can't be Lord. If Jesus is not Lord, then you and I are not necessarily on our way to heaven. We're doomed for all of eternity. And so the reality of the resurrection has eternal consequences, but it also has earthly consequences. The earthly consequences are that you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, have a power available to us to rise up. And that's what I really want to talk to you about today in this message I've entitled exactly that, Rise Up. So if you're here today, maybe you're down, I want to encourage you to rise up. If you're here today and maybe something has kind of taken the rug out from underneath you, I want to encourage you to rise up. If you came here today and maybe life went sideways on you, I want to encourage you to rise up. Before the end of today, I hope that you'll embrace this power available to every single one of you to rise up again. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you make this message relevant, real, and personal to every person? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to the text, we find not just an ancient text that gives us an account of a religious myth, but rather we find a historically reliable text of epic proportions, If true, the resurrection of Christ should be life altering. It should be paradigm shifting. If the resurrection is true, indeed, every person who truly believes it ought to alter, ought to alter, let me get that three times, ought to alter their life and change everything about it to revolve around the resurrection. If it's not true, it is the biggest hoax in history and therefore religion is in vain and our worship of Christ is in vain, our assembly at church is in vain and we ought to just forget about it. But I believe that God has written the stories of the resurrections or I should say the account of the resurrection in such a way as to show us that it is indeed historically reliable and worthy to be trusted. And there's three people in particular in the text that add credence to the fact that this account is absolutely reliable. And those three people are Mary, Peter, and Joseph. And I want to begin with Mary. And um, Mary is an interesting character in the text. The Bible says that she came to the tomb while it was still dark. Did you notice that? A lot of people think that Jesus rose at sunrise. But if you read this scripture, the Bible says she came while it was dark and the stone had already been rolled out of the way. Which tells me that Jesus didn't wait till sunrise to be resurrected from the dead. That he rose while it was still dark. Which tells me that even when it seems like God has abandoned us. And even when it seems like God has forgotten about us. Even when it seems like life is dark. How many of you know God is doing his best work in the dark? God is doing stuff behind the scenes when you can- can't see him when you don't know him when you think he when he when you think he's forgotten about you. God does his best work in the dark, but that's not why I came to the text. I came to the text because of the choice to make Mary the primary eyewitness in the resurrection account. Now, why is this strikingly odd for Bible times? Well, the Bible was written in a very misogynistic society. Uh, a place where women were considered inferior in every way to men. Matter of fact, one um, second century Greek philosopher who was an opponent of early Christianity by the name of Celsius said this of Mary Magdalene. He said, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female? Let me read it again just to make sure you got it, okay? I know you ladies are really going to like this. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female? Somebody said, you're talking about my wife, Pastor? No, I'm just, I'm not talking about you. wife. Now listen, there's no historically plausible explanation for making a woman the primary eyewitness in an account that you were trying to get other people to believe written in those days. Matter of fact, if a woman gave testimony in those days, it was laughed at a court. If a woman was the primary person who was retelling the incident, it had no credibility. And so for the gospel writers to put a woman in here as the primary person who gave the testimony and the primary eyewitness, there There is no rational reason for it, no rational explanation for it, except that it really, really happened. Otherwise, why would you put it in the text? But this is not just any woman who is put in a text. This is not just your ordinary hysterical woman. This is Mary Magdalene. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, Luke chapter 8 tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of this woman. I mean, think about this. If you were going to pick somebody to be your eyewitness in a particular case so that everybody else is going to believe it, and you're in Bible times, you wouldn't pick a woman, and certainly you wouldn't pick a woman who is known around town for having seven demons in her. How does a person with seven demons uh, act? What do they look like? Well, if you read in the Bible about the demoniac that used to cut themselves and hang out in the tombs, the profile of that person Is somebody who runs around naked all the time, talks to themselves, hears voices, cries out in public, is homeless, and a social outcast. So here is Jesus, and he's resurrected from the dead, and his primary eyewitness, the person that he hand-selects to go and tell everybody else that he's resurrected from the dead, is not just a woman, but it is a hysterical woman that is known to be crazy in every way. Would you pick somebody like that if you were trying to invent a lie? Anybody ever get around real good liars? Anybody ever get around real good liars? They seem to always have the perfect set of circumstances lining up, don't they? I mean, it's almost too, you, here's how you can tell if somebody's lying. If everything is too good to be true, they're usually lying. You can tell church folks lie all the time too. They tell you their testimony, yeah, I got sick and God healed me. It was miraculous. They're lying. Not because God healed them, because they left out all the parts of how when they got the report, they were stricken with fear, and they they got afraid, and they, they weren't sure whether to be mad at God or to go to church, and and they struggled through, and they, they prayed, and they felt like God wasn't answering their prayers, and they came to church, and they, they heard something that encouraged them, and they, they talked to somebody else who lifted them up when they were down, and finally, they got into the place where they just released it to God and trusted Him, and then God healed them. That's the real testimony, but it's too perfect. I got sick, believed God, was healed. No, no, you didn't. It's not the way it went. He said, liars just seem to have everything perfect. But in the gospel account, we don't have a perfect rendition. We don't have a perfect witness. We have a witness who was a woman, and in the Bible days, that was testimony not accepted, and a crazy woman at that. Why is she the primary eyewitness? Because the story is being written. The account is being written so that we understand how credible it is that there's no way that she could have been the witness Unless she really, really was the witness. But I think Jesus picked a woman for obvious reasons, right? Women remember details. Imagine if a man was the first one to witness the resurrection. Yeah, he went to the tomb. Jesus wasn't there. Got anything else for us? No, that's, that's it. I don't got anything else for you. We wouldn't know about like the angels and mistaking Jesus as a gardener and, and the stone being rolled away. We wouldn't know any of that information and just be like, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't there. Well, well. no no that's that's it but I think he also picks this woman because she is the gospel see what do you mean pastor here's somebody who didn't do anything to earn salvation she was crazy She had seven demons in her. She was a social outcast. But Jesus revealed himself to her. He selected her. He saved her by grace. That is the gospel message. That you and I, we can't do anything in and of ourselves to merit God's salvation. We're not good enough. We can't behave ourselves into salvation. And quite frankly, there's nothing bad that we can do that prevents us from receiving salvation. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And so Jesus picks the woman that typifies grace, Mary, the crazy woman with the seven demons. She's my primary eyewitness. But notice what he also does. He reveals himself to her. When Mary first lays I imagine this. She's seen Jesus for a lot of his life. All of a sudden she turns around and there he is. She's looking at him face to face. The Bible says she didn't know it was Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. And I thought to myself, how could you mistake Jesus when he's right in front of your face? Well, the same way that you and I do. When we are so full of pain in our lives, we miss God revealing himself in our lives, don't we? So many things. we become so focused on on what's happening and what we're going through and the pain that we're feeling. And Mary was in pain. She watched the person that set her free from seven demons. She watched her Lord and her Savior die, crucified, brutally beaten, and she's overwhelmed with the sorrow. And there is God right in front of her face, and she doesn't even know it. And I'll bet you there are some of you that are here today, some of you at our other campuses, and there's so much pain going on in your life that you miss God's appearances in your life. You miss when he shows up. But here's the great thing about god god understands our pain and god doesn't walk away from us when we don't recognize him you know what he does he reveals himself to us and here's what he does he doesn't say mary it's me look up jesus he calls her by name and that's the most touching thing in all the world in the middle of your circumstances when you think, God, where are you? And God, why is there so much pain? That God lets you know that He's personally involved and that He personally cares about you. That the God of the universe knows every single one of us by name. This, this blows my mind. I'm in the, I'll go into the, you know, the grocery store and somebody will walk up to me and say, Hey, pastor, I don't know their name. And that's just like a few thousand people, right? And i got to remember everybody's name, a few thousand people. The God of the universe knows every single person by name. He knows you intimately. The scripture says that every hair on our head is numbered, that everything we do is recorded in his book. God loves you, and he is committed to revealing himself to you through all your pain, through all your problems, through all the times when you don't even recognize that he's there. That's why Mary is picked, because Mary is the gospel. Our presence is perfect to show us the authenticity and the reliability of the gospel. But then there's these two other guys, Peter and John. You have to love the way that John writes the gospel that bears his name. Listen to this little thing that he puts in here. He's he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. How many of you know this this is a big deal? This is a theological juggernaut. And so he's, you would think that he would be really astute and really, you know, you know uh, uh, intelligent and, and, and very specific in the way that he writes the details. But here's what he says. So they both ran together, Peter and him, Peter and John. And the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I'm thinking, why is this in the account? Who was faster he's like get me and peter we were running to the tomb and i just want everybody to know for all of history i beat him there and i'm reading this going boys will be boys right you know it's like the machismo thing i was faster than you you know type of thing and i do this too you might have heard me say this before like i do things like if we're walking across the street together i make sure i get to the other side first it's just like an inbred thing and and what john fails to recognize is that he was 10 years younger than peter of course he was faster how many of you know that as you get older, you know you lose a step, right? How many of you know that's true? Can I, I just need to see your hand? I need full participation in this. How many of you know that as you get older, you lose a step? Can I see your hand? Can I see it? How many would agree that somebody who's older should be athletically more equipped than somebody who's younger? Can I can I see your hand? Raise your hand. Hold it up. I need to see full participation in this. Pastor Brandon, I want you to see all this. He and I we had this competition throw a football. He beat me by this much. And he thought he was better than me. I said, yeah, but you got 10 years. 10 years is worth at least that much, right? (laughs) Anyway, I digress. That's not why I came to this. Peter and John, they're running to the tomb as fast as they can go because Mary told them that they stole the body of Jesus. This was before Jesus had had appeared to her and revealed himself to her. And so they go there, and they're going to try to see where's the body, where's the body. And they get to the tomb, and I want you to notice what it says here. It says, and he, stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen cloths, and, and when he saw them, I want you to think this. He saw them, and he, he did, hmm. I want you to think that again. Hmm. Anybody ever see What About Bob? movie What About Bob? He's eating. You know, the food is really good. It's like, hmm, 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 hmm. You know, when the food is good, you should make some noise. Also, when the preaching is good, you should make a little noise. Every now and again, let, let the preacher know. He saw the linens lying there. He did not go in. Then Simon came, following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw, hmm, the linens lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came into the tomb went in also, and he saw, hmm, and he believed, I want you to notice that the reason why Peter and John believed in the resurrected Christ is because they saw the linens and they saw the handkerchief or the napkin that was folded. I want you to know something about faith. A lot of people will tell you that faith is blind. That, you know, just who can, you know, who knows? Just just go ahead and pick something. That's not true. The scripture never even says that faith is blind. It says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is always based on evidence, and that's what God has given us here. He's given us evidence for us to make that leap of faith. And the evidence that he's given us is these linen strips and this folded handkerchief. Now, you said to me, Pastor, why did the linen strips and folded handkerchief cause Peter and John to believe? Well, I have to explain to you how they took care of bodies when they laid them into a tomb. It was a two-phase process. The first phase was the cleaning and the anointing of the body, where they wrap the body in strips of linen mingled with spices. Layer upon layer of strips of linen, like kind of like paper mache Picture that for a minute. You know, you dip it in the glue and then you wrap it around something. Then you get another one, you dip it in the glue, you wrap it around the. Sun. And you put layer upon layer upon layer and eventually that hardens and it becomes kind of like, you know, its own thing. It becomes a, a shell around whatever it is that you're putting the paper mache on. Well, that's what they would do to the bodies. They would put strip upon strip of these linen cloths that were dipped in these spices around the bodies. Now, I want you to look at how how much spices and linen strips they put on the body of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 38. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came back and he took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of aloes and myrrh about a hundred Pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews were to bury it. A hundred pounds. You now, how much they used on an ordinary person in Bible times? One pound. So here is Jesus' body, and I got got to get this in your mind. Before he is laid in the grave, he has a hundred pounds of linen strips dipped in these aloes and these myrrhs wrapped around his body so that these mummified so that there's this big shell around him and the reason why they did this in Bible times is because they wanted to mask the smell of decomposure. Jews believed they would let the body lay there until it was fully decomposed and only the bones were left and the reason why they did this was because they believed That as the bodies decomposed, it was payment for a lifetime of sin. They believed that decomposure began on the fourth day. They believed that decomposure, which was payment for a lifetime of sin, began on the fourth day. So the person who was in the grave was expected to pay for their sins... By decomposing from day four on to the end of the year. And then bones would just be left. How many of you know when Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Three days. Why? Because he had no personal sin to pay for. And so he could not be decomposed in any way. It wasn't his body that was decomposed that paid for our sin. It was his shed blood. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so he came forth on the third day. And then all that was left were, you know, these bones and they'd put the bones in this, this actuary, if you will, um, ossuary actually, which was a, a tiny little box. And they would then put that box of bones in a sepulcher and they would label it so that people would know in the future who it was and they'd put it with the family. And then the second phase after they would put the, you know, the bones in the box, actually when they prepared the, the, the body, what they would do is they would take a napkin. And instead of wrapping the face in the linen strips, they would just put a napkin over the face. And so here are Peter and John. And they were told somebody stole the body of Jesus. So they run. John's like, I beat you. They get there. And they look in. And they see the linen strips. Hmm. And they see the napkin. Hmm. Peter looks in, he sees the linen strips, hmm, and then he sees the napkin, hmm. The word saw in the Bible that's used here is the Greek word thoreo, and it means to theorize. It means to to gather the evidence and come up with a conclusion. Now, how many of you know um, that when thieves break into a place, they kind of try to ransack the place and leave as quick as possible, Right? Maybe know that's probably true, right? And so Peter looks in and he thinks, This is not a crime scene. Wait. Wherever this body went, if somebody took it, they took time to unwrap all the linen strips because the linen strips are just laying there in a pile. How did that happen? Were these special thieves? They looked over and they said, Man, these thieves folded the laundry before they left the site. Are these special Anybody remember my cousin Vinny? Do you have special grits? Do your grits cook faster than my grits? I want to know, are these special thieves? Do these thieves fold the laundry before they leave the site? No. And Peter and James, they look and they see the pile of linens and the folded napkin. And they say, this couldn't have been a crime scene. Nobody stole this body. This had to be what Jesus said would happen when he was Walk in the earth. He must be resurrected. The evidence is right there. Moreover, he looked at it and he said, it couldn't have been disciples because they wouldn't have dishonored the body like that. Jews wouldn't have stolen the body and then taken it away without all of the uh, linens on it to the decomposure. There's a legend concerning masters and servants in the Hebrew culture. And it goes like this. When a servant was setting the dinner table for the master, he made sure that it was exactly the way that the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, and then the servant would just wait out of sight and watch as the master would eat. And if the master had finished eating, what the master would do is wipe their hands, clean their beard, and take the napkin and wad it up and just throw it on the table. Kind of just... Like that. And if if the napkin was wadded, the servant would know, okay, the master's done. I can go and approach the table. But if the master wasn't finished, what the master would do is he would take the napkin, fold it up real nice, and just lay it down. And, and what that meant to the servant is don't approach the table. I'm not done yet. I'm not finished yet. I'm coming back again. Can you see Jesus? He gets up. He's got the napkin on his face. It falls to the ground. Jesus says, wait one one second here, one second. Why would he do that? So that when Peter and John came and they looked, they said, he's not done yet. He's coming back. Can I encourage somebody today? God's not finished in your life. God's not done in your life. Don't you quit on God because it looks dark. Don't quit on God because you think God has left you for a season. God is not finished. The folded napkin is there. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Now, what does this mean? It means something very profound to you and I. Just one little point and then we're done. It means that you and I can rise up. And here's why. Because according to the scripture, The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, not a different power, not a power almost like, not a substitute power, not a fake power, but the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Watch this. It's available to anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 19 says, I also pray that you will understand. In other words, I love this prayer because he's saying this is going to be hard for you to grasp. You might understand the words, but I want you to get this in your heart. He says, "I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him." This is the same. Not a counterfeit not a, almost as good as, not a, not a knockoff, not 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 a generic brand. This is the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. Here's what he's saying: He's saying the same power that got Jesus up from the dead is available to you, so that whenever life knocks you down, you can rise up. Now, now, hold on, because I'm not I'm not sure we we truly get it. How powerful? is that power that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, so powerful that it beat the only opponent that was undefeated throughout the history of mankind both before or since the resurrection of Christ and that opponent was death. Death has only one mark against its record. It has defeated everyone who's ever lived. It has defeated every strong man and every strong woman. It has defeated both the young and the aged, both the rich and the poor, both those in power and those who have never tasted power. It has defeated every race, every generation, every culture. No matter how hard mankind has tried to defeat death, no matter what medical inventions, no matter how much we've searched for the fountain of youth, death was undefeated before Jesus and after Jesus death was perfect but one day almost 2000 years ago after three days when it seemed like death had claimed another helpless victim there was an earthquake and then a flash of radiant light that burst forth from the seams of the big ceiling stone and rolled out of the way the earth began to shake and the Roman soldiers unsheathed their swords and they clattered clanged to the ground and fell helplessly they once worked on the lamb that was on the cross but now they had no power over the lion of the tribe of judah and what these soldiers saw next caused them to be dumbfounded they stared as two angels in brilliant light sat upon the stone the power was so great that they didn't know how to take it they stumbled and staggered backwards But then they looked, and they saw something that really bewildered them. And it caused them to fall over as if they were dead men. Not able to run, not able to move. And what they saw next was no lamb. They saw a lion who with his hand raised in the air said, I'm he that was dead, but liveth again, and I hold the keys of death, hell, and the grave. That power, that power, it's available to you. It's available to you. It's available to you to rise up. So here's my question for you today. Why are you down? Why are you staying down? The worst thing that you can do in life is to stay down. How many of you know life is going to knock everybody down? Count on it more than once there is no shame in getting knocked down we all get knocked down you heard the statement before what doesn't kill you makes you stronger right the only thing that can take you out the only thing that can wreck your life is when you stay down especially when you have a power to rise up again and so my question for you is why are you down rise up has sickness and disease knocked you down rise up has depression and despondency knocked you down rise up has divorce and unfaithfulness knocked you down rise up has poverty and lack knocked you down rise up has addiction and affliction knocked you down rise up has emotional distress keeping you down rise up why you have a power that is on the inside of you to rise up rise up don't stay down It's the worst thing that you could ever do. You know, this week, we witnessed something in our country that caused most Americans and people all around the world to pay close attention to. And I know some of you think I'm going to refer to the Mueller report, but I'm not. It was when Tiger Woods Won the Masters After an 11 year Drought from any major Championship And after a huge fall from grace Tiger Woods Was back on top of the Golf world again Dating back to a decade Or two ago he was the darling Of golf Destined to surpassed the great Jack Nicholas in most major wins ever. And then time, father time and age, there's that age thing again, to just you. And health problems, according to most commentators, stole his ability to perform at the level that he once had. I don't discount age because age is very real. As you get older, you're just not... A 48-year-old can't compete with a 38-year-old in athletics. Isn't that true, Pastor Brandon? Isn't that true? (laughs) But I don't believe that that's what stole Tiger Woods' ability to compete at a high level. I think it was his personal struggles, his unfaithfulness to his wife. Sometimes we don't realize how the choices that we make affect us in all areas of life. But then I watched as the... The entire world, whether you're a golfer or not a golfer, was rooting for Tiger. Did you see as he walked up the 18th fairway Hell, everybody was cheering him. And if you were watching it on TV, you were like, yeah, I want to hear Tiger roar again. You know, I want to see him pump his fist after he makes a putt. It was almost as if something was coming from within the soul of the world in America. One sports commentator put it like this. There's the American dream. And then there is the American theme, anchored in the gospel of a second chance. And Tiger Woods tapped into the American theme. Profound. Profound because that is the gospel. The gospel is that you and I get to have a second chance. And it's not really a second chance. It's a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a tenth chance, a twenty, a hundredth chance. But let's just talk about two. There are two primary chances that you and I get in life. The first one we don't really have no control over. It's, It's the life that we're born into. We don't get to choose our parents We don't get to choose the the date of our arrival. We don't get to choose the family that we're raised in. We don't get to choose the environment. We don't get to choose the privileges or lack thereof that we have. Life, Life births us, and we don't get any choice over that. And so to some extent, that's not fair to everybody because not everybody is born into the same circumstances and has the same privileges. And for us to not acknowledge that some people have it more difficult just by virtue of the fact of who they were born to and where they were born is just not honest. Some people have to work harder at life than other people do. And by the way, thank God for those that are able to work harder and overcome. But listen, never be ashamed because you got it easy either. Hello? Some people are like, oh, no, I'll do it on my own. Why? You know what happens when you get in Christ? He gives you his favor. And guess what? He He doesn't expect you to work for it. Don't ever be ashamed that you got it easy. But nobody gets to choose. Nobody gets to choose that first birth. And life is not not fair to a lot of people. But there's a second opportunity that we have on life. It's not when we're born for the first time, but here's what, it's when we're born again. And I know religion has made that into a scary, weird term because there are a lot of crazy pastors out there. Can I get an amen? amen? And can I just tell you, there are a lot of crazy congregants out there. Trust me on this one. My last book is going to be called, What Does Jerry Springer and the Church Have in Common? And I'm going to tell all the stories about the crazy people that come to church. But you know what church is for? It's not necessarily for the healthy. The Bible says not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. And so we get the second chance on life. And the second chance is when we are born again. And it's a beautiful term because here's what it means. It means that no matter what's dogged your life before, no matter how much sin you've committed, no matter how much turmoil you've been involved in, that you have an opportunity to start over again with Jesus Christ as the center of your life. And it's like getting a new lease on life. And here's the thing about the second chance. You get to choose that one. It doesn't just come on you. It doesn't just happen to you. You're presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody in this room, everybody watching on television and on our campuses, you've heard the gospel more times in your life than you can count. The question that God wants to know this Easter is when you're going to respond to it. When you're going to re- respond by giving your life to Jesus Christ and realizing that the resurrection is not just another story. really happened. If it really happened, then Jesus is who he really said he is. And if he is who he really said he is, then he came to do what he said he came to do, which was to pay the penalty for my sin and yours so that we wouldn't be separated from God for all of eternity. It's a life-changing, life-altering, paradigm-shifting event that requires our surrender to him.